Hi everybody, this is Marie France with a quick note about this episode. We recorded it back in December, uh, but then as Megan very eloquently puts it, life happened. And I didn't finish editing the episode until last week. So, you know, fair warning, the main topic is just as relevant as it was three months ago, but uh, some of the anecdotes at the beginning are a little bit old news. Sorry about that. Hi everyone, this is Everything Soon, a podcast about things out of Montreal and Halifax. Today is Sunday, December 23rd, 2018. I am Megan Cox, and 800 kilometers to my west is a woman who recently went to a skating rink in order to attend a baby shower. Hello, Marie France. Hi, yeah, I just want to say that the baby shower was for a kid being born into like an amateur hockey league dynasty so the location is totally normal still though a skating rink (laughs) well we were on the ice (laughs) the rink had a whole community center attached and the baby shower was like in a multi-purpose room we could hear the sounds of a hockey game happening right on the other side of the wall (laughs) so that was something that's amazing that's like peak canadian i know so today we're going to be talking about food yeah we're talking about food Specifically, we're talking about supply management. I'm I'm excited about that. Now, what is supply management, Marie Frost? (laughs) It's a system for controlling the production, price, and sale of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But first, we're going to do a news about a segment. So, Marie Frost, what's your news? Well, Megan, recently I tried to run in a five-kilometer race. Oh, dear. How did that go? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so basically it turned into like a B-plot from a Seinfeld episode episode so like (laughs) i i literally ran in the wrong direction uh, for about two kilometers also it snowed wow yeah (laughs) so are you going to sign up for more races in the future oh totally yeah what's your news megan okay so this is not specifically news about me but uh it's a few weeks out now but i was totally in love with that story about that rogue otter who was loose in vancouver's chinatown uh did you hear about him yeah i i yeah (laughs) (laughs) so for our listeners if you had not heard about this otter i'm going to lay down the details for you So for about a week or so in late November, there was this river otter who had broken into the classical Chinese garden and was eating the koi fish, which I'll add in and of itself (laughs) was kind of a bummer because some of them were decades old. And there was one in particular that was about 50 years old. Uh, So it's not like these were just like random goldfish or anything. The Vancouver Park Board even got involved to try and capture this guy uh, using bait and everything. But he continued to evade capture. And what I thought was particularly hilarious was he was still getting the bait from the traps, <laughs> but still remaining, you know, on the lamb. Legend. Uh, right? While he was eating the bait, he wasn't eating the koi. So that's a positive. Uh, and during this time, there was an otter spotted roaming around Chinatown outside of the gardens. Uh, whether or not it was the same otter, I have no idea. But I don't recall there being an abundance of river otters in Vancouver city center while I was living there. Based on our conversations about this, I feel like you're going to mention how inspirational this, <laughs> this otter is. He's totally inspirational. Like, okay, so he reminds me a lot of that raccoon who climbed up that building in Minnesota this past summer. And having said that, I didn't realize that this that had happened this past summer because this year has been 84 years long. But anyway, the raccoon showed remarkable resilience climbing that building, and we were all rooting for her to get to the top. And I don't know if we should have been, 
And I can't recall if she'd reached the top or not, but she made it out okay in the end. And I just feel that this otter who like evaded capture from the <laughs> man, basically, who takes what he wants. I just, I, I don't know. That's inspirational to me. And honestly, this has been such a strange and at times not super cool year. So I will take anything in terms of somewhat feel-good stories because if an otter can survive this year and eat all the koi that he wants, then maybe you too can survive this year and metaphorically eat all the metaphorical koi in your life. Be the otter is my motto for the end of this year. Uh, so that was news about me. And now on to our question segment. Oh yeah, so we had a question for the employment insurance episode from Katie. She asked, how does Canada compare to other quote developed countries in terms of employment insurance? Didn't we talk a little bit about that in the episode? Oh, yeah, but it was very short and only semi-coherent, so I cut it. <laughs> right, right, right. And now I'm going to go kind of the other way and spend too long answering. As you do. Um, so just to remind ourselves, in Canada, employment insurance is funded through deductions from paychecks and from mandatory contributions from employers. And those eligible are salaried employees, so not independent workers. And employment insurance benefits are about 55% of their salaries for up to to 45 weeks. The book Unemployment Compensation Throughout the World, this book uh, has a chart for the OECD countries, which indicates that in terms of benefits, Canada is pretty much right in the middle in terms of, quote, generosity in what could loosely be termed developed countries. That said, there are a number of less obvious ways in which unemployment compensation programs can be different from one another. The way that the program is funded and how long you have to contribute to it to be eligible and what may or may not disqualify you. So the Examples I picked out are in Australia, employment insurance is funded through income taxes, so not through deductions that are specifically designated. And those eligible are like anyone who has no income, as far as I can tell. And insurance benefits are fixed so it's the same for everyone and there's no end date. So as far as I can tell, like what what they call employment insurance here, we would call it social assistance. Okay. Um, in Denmark, um, employment insurance is voluntary, so you could be not insured. And just so we're clear, here in Canada, it's not voluntary. Like, you're paying for it whether you want to or not. So people in Denmark can contribute to unemployment insurance funds, which are managed by state-approved private insurance companies. So, like, my... Danish is non-existent, so I couldn't figure out the cost of contributions. But um, I did read that to be eligible, you have to be, you have to have been contributing for over a year, and then after that, benefits can be up to ninety percent of your salary for up to three years. That's huge. Unemployment compensation can be very different from one country to the next in terms of who runs the programs and the amount of benefits, the amount of contribution, the period during which you have to contribute to be eligible, and the period during which you receive benefits. And also, I will add, conditions attached to the benefits. Like in some places, you have to like submit a report showing how many jobs you applied for every week and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, also, the way that you lost your job matters in some places and others it does not. So in Canada, you are not eligible for unemployment insurance if you voluntarily left your job, except if you left your job for one of the reasons that the federal government calls just cause like sexual harassment or discrimination and then if you leave your job because you're being discriminated against then you are eligible just like you would have been if you'd been fired and the right. point is some unemployment compensation programs like in ireland cover everyone no matter what the reason whereas in other places like in the u.s 
the reason someone is unemployed matters very much. And what's considered a reason that justifies receiving benefits is like hotly debated. Right. Uh, anyway, Megan, do you have a question? I did have a question. What's your favorite Canadian television show? <laughs> Um, <laughs> my all-time favorite is specifically the first season of Da Vinci's Inquest. What's yours? Uh, that, uh, that's an awesome show. I haven't watched it in forever. Uh, my favorite Canadian TV show is Letter Kenny. Yay! <laughs> Completely different end of the spectrum there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So that was our question segment uh, here at Everything Soon Podcast. We are fans of the non-passive relationship with media. So please send questions to at everything underscore soon on Twitter or over email to questions at everythingsoonpodcast.com. wanted to talk about food today. Uh, food is personal and you might even say intimate because food choices involve the relationship you have with your body but also the relationship you have with your environment and since we live in capitalism food choices also involve your relationship with money. So we're going to talk about food today uh, specifically food production. Yeah so agriculture. But like agriculture in terms of who is in a position to do it and how and why. Yeah, I feel like it's easy to forget that uh, someone has to actually do the farming. So mm -hmm. like w when we're talking about local food or organic food or fair trade food or like talking about GMOs or gluten or romaine lettuce, you know, um, or like, I don't know, what are other food topics? Food security. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're going yeah. we to talk about food security in a future episode. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, where Oh, yeah. So when we're thinking about... <laughs> A fair trade food or a genetically modified food or food security. We're talking about food as a consumer good. And the thing with that is, if you're going to think of food as a consumer good, you need to realize that it has a lot of unusual characteristics. So in no particular order, first, the amount of money the average person spends on food might change, but never exponentially. The second, you can't opt out of food. <laughs> Yeah. The third, the time it takes to increase production is calculated sometimes in years. So for example, if you produce apples and you plant more trees, the new trees will take six to 10 years to produce apples. Another example, if you produce coffee, new plants will take three to four years to produce coffee beans, etc. Mm -hmm. um, another characteristic for some foods can keep for a fairly long time, but most cannot another characteristic food production is highly capital intensive um in that way in particular you can think of it as the opposite of say creative writing <laughs> so <laughs> analogies um so if you want to start producing stories you need your brain and a writing implement and uh, you might be finished in a matter of weeks or months your problem won't be producing the story it'll be finding a buyer if you want to produce food on the other hand you need many things and a lot of time but odds are you'll find a buyer no problem so whether the buyer will pay a price that cover your costs is a whole other issue but what i'm trying to say is that on average finding someone to pay money for a pint of milk is easier than finding someone to pay for a short story mm -hmm. okay another aspect 
Agricultural production involves land, um, of which there is a limited supply, and which is regularly purchased as an investment. Like, investment mm. advisors will include land properties and portfolios, which drives up the price. Okay, and one last aspect. Agricultural land is always very valuable to property developers because cities, historically, have been built in places where people could easily feed themselves. So I live in Montreal where it's it's a huge thing, right? Because um, the mm-hmm. regulation, like, you have to change zoning of land to be able to like for example build condos on it and right yeah um <laughs> so so that's the media constantly because of course the farmers union would really prefer mm-hmm. to like you know use that land for frankly what it's best suited for producing food yeah so that <laughs> and like i remember that being a thing when i was when i went back to school and did agricultural economics and like the the professors they, they would talk about like this moment of like all of a sudden people really getting that that like mm-hmm. by definition cities are where the best agricultural land is therefore <laughs> in that sense we're a little bit screwed um yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay so yeah. when you put all those characteristics together you've got kind of a tight situation for farmers that which is basically what you just mentioned yeah. that you know yeah <laughs> yeah um historically governments tend to support farming as a business mm-hmm. in a variety of ways so for in here in Canada for example um farmers have a special status in the Canadian Income Tax Act and they're allowed to use the cash method of accounting if you know what that is you'll find that hilarious um there's also a federal <laughs> crop insurance program um and there used to be something called the wheat board so, oh, this could do a whole episode on that um anyway that kind of thing and ta-da-da, there's a system called supply management so supply management uh means the amount of the amount produced uh the supply is controlled as well as the price and the sale uh in canada five agricultural products are supply managed uh and these are table eggs uh broiler hatching eggs chickens turkeys and milk in a very strict version of supply management using milk as an example uh a specific amount of milk would be produced within a given year. The price would be determined in advance regardless of market value, and only that milk would be sold on local markets. So this means that what farmers do has to be controlled, so they don't produce more than a certain amount of milk. And it also means that the milk produced by anyone else has to be stopped from entering local markets. So in practice, the way this is done is by using quotas, still using milk as an example, a milk quota is a right to produce a certain amount of milk. If you're familiar with the concept of taxi medallions, um, quotas work the exact same way. They were originally distributed among already existing farmers, and those farmers produced milk according to the quotas and then sold them to new farmers, like they sold the quotas to new farmers when they decided to retire and so on. Uh, So in practice, currently, a milk quota in Canada is calculated in kilograms of milk fat, Uh, One milk quota produces between $21,000 and $45,000 and gives the producer the right to produce uh, one kilogram of milk fat per day. In Quebec, there is a price ceiling on quotas right now, and they're $24,000. Supply management in Canada is not as strict as it originally was. Some imported dairy products are sold on Canadian markets, notably European cheeses. Yeah, um, so just so we're clear on this, That means that if you want to become a milk farmer and you want to like sell your milk, you don't just want to have like three cows, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to purchase quota to be allowed to do that right okay and like um it, it, if if you thought of chickens instead like 
That's pretty funny because like a lot of, I mean, there are some people who have chickens just like in their yard. That's like a thing. Yeah. And like you have to purchase quota to produce, to produce eggs. Mm-hmm. If you have more than 99 chickens. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the magic number. That's the rule. Yeah. <laughs> And like, that's so funny to imagine because it's saying that, you know, 99 chickens or less is like, Mm -hmm. you're not a professional farmer. And it's so (laughs) hard to imagine if you don't do this for a living, like, what do you mean? Like 99 chickens, that would be a full time job, you know, but it's like, yeah, yeah, but you would never have this. Yeah. Sorry, I just have this vision of my in my head of someone who's wanting to become a legitimate farmer yeah. and they have like 99 chickens and, you know, just like, oh, you know, I've only got 99 chickens. And then they add the one more like, oh, now I'm legitimate now that I have 100. Like, like it doesn't yeah. seem like that should be the barrier, like one chicken. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you visit an egg farm, mm-hmm. like the size of it, you can expect to have for them to have about 20,000 chickens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, they'll be able to make a living from that. Right. You yeah. know? Oh so, so, so yeah. So it's just like, wow. Like, it's just such another world. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I digress. Um, so one thing that's important to point out with regards to supply management is that the decisions about production and price control are made by the producers themselves. Um, so when I was writing this episode, I kept making jokes about um, how this like sounds like a Soviet system, um, <laughs> which, you know, to be fair, it, yeah, pre- pretty much, pretty much. A little bit. The big difference is that all those decisions are not made by like some sort of central government. In this case, it's the agricultural union. They're the one who sit around and go like, okay, how much, right. how much milk can we produce that we can expect to sell all of it by the end of the year and there won't be any mm-hmm. waste? Decisions about sales, about who is allowed to sell what to consumers. That, however, it's not made by producers, which of course creates tensions. So every time there's an like there's like international trade negotiations like there have been recently for NAFTA, you know, supply mm-hmm. management is brought up and hotly debated. So another thing that's important to point out is that the supply management system involves no direct cost to taxpayers. Like supply management just kind of organizes and regulates itself. So I guess the question that our listeners might have at this stage is why? Like, what's the point? Why would there be a system like this? Yeah. So my my agricultural <laughs> policy book, um, my agricultural policy book is called Agricultural Policy, Agribusiness and Rent-Seeking Behavior. It says that the short answer is market power. So mm. if I stay again with a milk example, to produce milk and sell it to supermarkets, you need a lot of cows, a lot of milk farmers, but you don't need that mm-hmm. many companies who make like farm machinery or companies that make processed milk into bottles or turn it into butter and cheese. Mm-hmm. So in policy book language, there is a concentration <laughs> of input suppliers and processor- processors. So you ended up with a situation where there are on one side many farmers and on the other like a single place where all those farmers go to process their milk in order to sell it mm-hmm. and end up with a power imbalance. And one solution for that kind of power imbalance is for farmers to bargain collectively after having decided in advance who's going to produce what and how much each person is going to be compensated. Right. So it's tempting to think consumers of milk, eggs, and poultry are at a disadvantage in the system since supply management involves artificially controlling the price. But in practice, consumers in Canada currently pay lower prices for fluid milk on average than they do in uh, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, Canadians also pay significantly less than Americans for butter, yogurt, and cheese. Now, given the affinity that almost every single person I know has for cheese, (laughs) I would say that in the end, this works out pretty well for the average Canadian consumer. 
Yeah, and just to tie it back to how we started on this topic, it also works out very well for the producers who end up with a stability that they would not have otherwise. So they will know they will know at the start of the year what their income, what they can expect it to be approximately at the end of the year and like know that there's like a certain uh, they can expect the same kind of stability as long as they hold the quota that they have. Um, right on. Yeah. And that that's like uh, t- to me anyway, like this is what is the important part right? Mm -hmm. We get an enormous advantage from having just the smallest measure of stability in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a thing that is maybe not discussed that much, you know, because we tend to think of anything in terms of like, what it does to consumers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Without thinking about how it impacts the producers. societal decisions there we are yeah (laughs) Uh, so for our final segment uh, we're going to continue our rundown of the geek social fallacies which was a term coined by michael sulawan wilson Uh, and if you had listened to the previous episode (laughs) you will know that we did not know how to pronounce his name and as i rightly assumed it was gaelic so it's not pronounced at all how it's spelled but uh so we discussed the first fallacy and that was that ostracizers are evil uh today we're moving on to the second fallacy on his list which is friends accept me as i am so like the ostracizers are evil fallacy this one at a glance is a pretty reasonable idea we want our friends to accept us for who we are because no one is perfect And we all want a space where we feel welcomed and where we won't be judged. Being someone's friend means that you love all of the wonderful things about them, but it also means that you love in spite of the things that you may not be 100% on board with. But people have flaws and that's okay. But part of being a friend is being able to be open and honest with people that you care about when they do or say something uncool. So this becomes a problem when you believe that your friends should blindly accept you for who you are and not offer any criticisms of you or or your behavior whatsoever. Uh, People who blindly believe in this fallacy will not offer criticisms of their friends as they consider that the duty to be supportive trumps any impulse to point out unacceptable behavior. So this will increase the group's conflict averseness. And as a result, they'd sooner let someone continue with questionable behavior than call it out, lest they make their friend feel like they're not accepted. Yeah, something that Sulwan Woodson did note as being interesting is that those who adhere to this fallacy often did not have trouble giving or accepting criticism from employers, coworkers, mentors, etc., since they didn't consider these people friends. So they're not expected to accept them unconditionally. Which really interesting, because you would think if they would have problem giving or receiving criticism, it would just be across the board. Like it wouldn't be limited to just their friends. Like it, criticism in any way would make them uncomfortable. You know, the thing for me with this fallacy is the idea that if you consider someone to be your friend, right? Um, mm-hmm. If if you're like under the hold of this fallacy, or I don't know what to call that, mm-hmm. you'll have this idea that if your friend says something mm-hmm. 
tells you something about your behavior that they're not comfortable with, all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, that's not my friend anymore. Like someone who's my friend would never do that. And like, yeah. And that's really the thing that like hit a nerve with me. I was just like, yeah, that is just when you stop and think about it, it makes no sense. No, it doesn't. Like, because, you know, I'm... I'm a human person, as you are, I'm sure. But like, you know, we say, even when we try our best, sometimes we say things that really aren't cool. Like we say something sort of problematic. It's just something that maybe we don't necessarily believe, but it's just been ingrained in us from living in the society we do live in. And I want people to call me out on that. I want someone to be like, hey, what you said wasn't cool, or it made me feel uncomfortable. Because that gives me a moment of self-reflection. So I could be like, oh, like, why did I say that? Is that something I honestly believe? Is that something that just sort of slipped out? And if it is something I believe, I want to be able to work on that if it's the, if it's something that makes someone uncomfortable, because I yeah. want the people around me to be comfortable around me. So I don't, like, I don't really understand this one. I get where it's coming from, but I don't at the same time. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know. Like, I find it amazing to, like, spell it out that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, today's quote. I, I chose this quote and I just want to say for the record, I think I'm being funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it might be a strange quote. Okay. Uh, today's quote is from Agricultural Policy, Agribusiness and Rent Seeking Behavior, second edition. Students of agricultural policy should recognize that a major source of disagreement among economists over the design and role of agricultural policy is that the objectives are never clearly defined. (laughs) I think that's cute. (laughs) Um, Thanks for recording this with me, Megan. Well, thank you for recording it with me.